0: Sometimes I know what I'm going to talk about. Sometimes I really don't. And sometimes the week just kind of suggests to me uh, what's going on. And this was one of those times um, where the the week kind of rolled on through. Had a uh, session that we were doing earlier in the week. And someone asked me a really good question. And I think it's a question that we all have asked at one time. He wanted to know why churches and religions and primarily Christianity had to always be right And everyone else be wrong. You know, that sense of exclusivity. And uh, that's a question that, of course, I've been asking myself for, had been asking myself for years. He said that he grew up Catholic. I grew up Catholic. And so, of course, we grew up in the one true church that was drilled into us as uh, as little first graders. And uh, the one true church, we were baptized as infants because if we weren't baptized into the faith and we died, even as infants, we couldn't go to heaven. We weren't on the inside. And of course, everybody else was wrong. And when I, my life journey took me all the way around in 20 years to evangelical Christianity, the message was pretty much the same. You know, They didn't call themselves the one true church, but we were right and everybody else was wrong. And he's been thinking about this, this, this young man that asked me, And I've been thinking about it. And what is it in us that has that need for exclusivity? What is it in us that needs to be right? And everyone else then has to be wrong if we're right. Anyone who disagrees with us. Now, granted, not all churches are created equal. Not all religions are created equal. But at the same time, why this need to exclude? What's driving that? And of course the answer is that it's all about fear. And Brene Brown says it perfectly. She says that we're here to connect to the extent that we don't connect. People who don't connect don't have those kinds of of connecting relationships in their lives. It's shame that divides them from the people who can. And she defines shame as the fear of disconnection, which I think is perfect. And the fear of disconnection, that shame drives us into certain behavior. If we're afraid that we can't connect, if we're afraid that we're not worthy of connection, then all the things out there in life are going to be really frightening. And we're going to have to make everything perfect. We're going to have to make everything just so. We're going to need to remove the pain. We're going to need to remove the imperfection. And we're going to need to remove any uncertainty. We're going to need to make uncertain things certain, to be right. And we do this in religion all the time. Religion is one of those places that we run to. Religion is one of those places where we look for salvation. We call it salvation. Sometimes we think about it in the next life. It really is about salvation here and now that extends into the next life. But we make religion certain because we're afraid. We do the same thing with our politics. Man, Politics. Just, just I know, groan, right? I mean, anything that you watch anymore, anything that you talk about, there is no conversation. There is no middle ground. It's black and white. It's on and off. It's left and right. And from one point of view, this person does everything wrong. From this point of view, they do everything right. And you know, neither of those positions can be true. And yet this is what we do. We stake out our positions, we make them certain, we build our walls, and then everybody else is wrong. And we're doing it out of fear. We're not afraid. I should say, we are afraid that everything is not right. We're afraid that maybe we're not going to survive this thing. We're afraid that maybe we're not going to make it, that nobody really has our back. And so what we do is we double down, stake a position doesn't really matter what side of the fence you're on. Just take a position, dig in deep, build your walls, and then exclude everyone else. And that feels to our fearful spirits like something. At least it's something. I know we've talked about the stages of spiritual growth in here before, but it's so illustrative of what actually is going on in the human psyche. There's four stages, according to Scott Peck, who I really like and I like his, his take on this. But the first stage is when a person, and and they're all about survival. They're all about programs for survival and programs for happiness. And so when that person in stage one feels that they are the only ones who are going to be able to affect their survival, affect their happiness, then they're focused on themselves. Their identity is with themselves. They do whatever they need to do. It's kind of Machiavellian. Ends justify the means, but anything I need to do to survive, that's moral. That's what I need to do graduate to stage two, and the identity goes from self to the group. Now we identify with the group. We let the group and the group think and the group culture and the group belief system become ours. And so we extend the walls around the group. And we can't let anyone else be right because then we're wrong. Then the uncertain things that we're so afraid of stay uncertain. We've got to make them certain. And, of course, stage three is the loss of those programs for happiness. Something happens in life that blows us out of the saddle. And we realize all these things that we've been doing all these years don't work anymore. They're not going to save us. And we're in that period of of disturbance, disorientation, disillusionment. And if we are fearful enough, we will double back down to stage one or stage two. But if something clicks, we can move on to stage four, which is real connection. Stage four is identification with everything that is. A sense of unity, a sense of connection. And so as you move through these stages of growth, you can sort of see where other people are. The need to make uncertain things certain is fear-based. And so that's stage one or stage two. And when we can let things be uncertain, when we can include others that don't agree with us, We can bring them in under that one tent. Then we're moving into stage four. Beautiful way to look at things because it explains so much. Jesus, of course, stage four man. Stage four. Would sit at table with anybody, whether they agreed with him or not, whether they were of his ethnicity, whether they were of his religion or not, whether they were of his politics or not. Romans, Samaritans, Jews... Gentiles, anybody. If they came to him, he would connect with them. That's a stage four spirituality. And the only way that it's possible is to at some point discover that we're actually loved. Discover that we have something in our back pocket that we cannot lose. A connection. This is the good news that Jesus is preaching because if we don't get the good news that we are loved this way, we are loved with this kind of abandon, with this kind of absolute nature, then the world is always going to be too scary for us not to have to go about and make uncertain things certain, to exclude those who disagree with us and chip away at the walls of our foundation. See, spirituality is not about certainty. And that's something that goes so against the grain, at least subconsciously, unconsciously, You know, psychologically, we want to make things certain. We want to know that we're saved. We want to have a risk-free environment in which to swim and move and make our choices. But spirituality is not about certainty. It's about mystery. It's about immersion into mystery. It's about becoming aware of this, this unseen world that is superimposed on top of our seen world. It can't be seen, it can't be measured, it can't be proven to anybody but yourself as you move out into it. But it remains mystery. You can't really express it, you can't transfer it to anybody else. That's so frustrating. You want to be able to give once you get it, you know, you just want to give it to somebody else and you can't do it. It doesn't work that way. It's a little by little process. More and more, we peel the way the layers, like the onion, and get more and more centered in this unseen world. More and more accustomed to living in paradox and mystery. It's kind of two steps forward and one step back sometimes, and it feels that way. But everybody who really goes down this journey, who really tries to get in touch with who God really is, experiences the same thing. Take a look in your inserts. And uh, I just put a, a series of quotes there because this is the way that it is expressed by people who are talking about the same thing, who have gotten to the place where they're not trying to make unsa- uncertain things certain anymore. They're not trying to exclude anybody. But Richard Rohr here, who is a Catholic and a Franciscan, he says, God is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. <laughs> You've got to love that. It's not like if we just work really hard, we're going to get God. You know, no matter how hard we work, He's stranger than we can think. There is a mystery there that cannot be solved. Frederick Buechner, who is a uh, Presbyterian minister and a writer, listen to your life, see it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness touch taste smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it because in the last analysis all moments are key moments and life itself is grace i threw one of mine in here too what if heaven is not a solving of the mystery but a deepening of it an eternalizing of it a learning to live well with what we'll never fully understand eugene peterson y'all know him who wrote the message, another Presbyterian minister, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Wow. Brennan Manning, another Catholic Franciscan, to avoid mystery is to avoid the only God worthy of worship, honor, and praise. M. Scott Peck, psychiatrist, author, we must be willing to fail and to appreciate the truth that life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. Jack Cornfield, it does not matter whether you have religion or are an agnostic and believe in nothing. You can only appreciate without knowing or understanding the mysteries of life. And finally, John Chrysostom. Chrysostom, A comprehended God is no God at all. And that goes all the way back to the 4th century. He was one of the Eastern Church Fathers. These ideas here, Are all pointing toward the fact that we're trying to do something when we make uncertain things certain that is antithetical to the spiritual journey. We cannot get there if our mindset is coming from this place of fear where we're trying to make certainty out of something that's essential mystery. In order for this to happen, we need to have the freedom, we need to have the permission to make mistakes. If we can't make mistakes, if we don't think we can make mistakes, we can't live, we can't breathe, we can't learn, we can't grow. This is true in the home, and some of you think about the way that you were raised. Were your parents tolerant of your mistakes? Did they allow <laughs> I heard that. Were they tolerant of your mistakes? Did they allow you to go in different directions? Did they allow you to grow your hair really long or really short? Did, you know How tolerant were they of these aberrations from what they believed was the way that you should go, or they believed they should go? What about at school? Do we allow our children to be able to explore different ways of learning? Do we allow them to make mistakes, to quote unquote fail? In the workplace, in churches, sometimes churches are the worst place to find any kind of tolerance for anything that goes off The strike zone. Anything that's right down the beaten path. This is what we have to be able to do if we're going to be able to do what we're talking about here. We have to be able to experiment. We have to be able to move in a direction that it's always going to be kind of two steps forward and one step back. We're learning by our mistakes. Remember Edison? The old, I don't know if it's a myth or a legend or truth. He supposedly found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb before he finally found out how to make a light bulb. What if he hadn't been allowed to do that? What if after the first mistake, he was just shelved off? You can't do this. You're not talented enough. This is not your area. You'd all be sitting in the dark. Jesus, in his good news, in this primary pillar of his teaching, is giving us the permission to make mistakes. The good news gives us the permission to fail, quote-unquote. Because if we know that we are loved and we can't do anything to lose that love, now we are free to explore as we individually need to explore to find out more and more about this mystery. There isn't just an answer that we're going to uncover. It is an unfolding that takes place. But if we're not allowed, given permission to fail, as we would interpret that, as others might, then we're never going to take this journey. Knowing we are loved makes all the difference in the world. And this doesn't just start with Jesus. This is all through the scripture. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 8.17. Solomon says, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, They can't really comprehend it. This delving into mystery. And Solomon, at the end of his life, as he's writing in Ecclesiastes, had tried everything under the sun to finally get to the place where he's beginning to understand that he can't understand. That it's always an unfolding, always a becoming. Job 42 at verse 1. And Job said in answer to the Lord, This is the last chapter of the entire book after everything that he has gone through all the hardships all of the bleedings of his friends and finally God appearing to him in the whirlwind telling him what he has told him and then Job finally responds in answer to the Lord I see that you are able to do everything and to give effect to all your designs who is this who makes dark the purposes of God by words without knowledge and there he's talking about himself for I have been talking without knowledge about wonders not to be searched out. That's it. Once we trust that we are loved, then we can start to see that this life, this world, really is the safe environment for us to experiment with life, with our spirituality. Now, this life may seem anything but safe to you, but once you know that you're loved, once you know you're going to survive this thing, it changes the whole meaning, attitude, demeanor, the way that we approach it. Life becomes a thrill ride that's just scary enough to keep you interested, to raise your heart rate. But you know that you're going to survive it that at the end of the ride. The car's going to come to a nice stop and mom and dad are waiting with the cotton candy to take you home, you know. Once you know that you're loved, once you know that God has your back, that you're going to survive this thing, life takes on a different cast. It's not that you can't get the wind knocked out of you. It's not that you can't get hurt. But knowing deep down that you're going to make it through, that it's going to be all right, changes everything. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. This good news, this love changes everything. Jesus didn't teach certainty, though. We, we have talked about this over and over again. Ask Jesus a direct question. What does he do? He asks you a question back. He tells you a story. He tries to get your head off of that direct line. As you're looking for certainty, he's trying to draw you into deeper min- min- mystery. If anything, he increases the amount of paradox in your thinking. He deepens the mystery until you finally get off that track and move over When the disciples asked him about his parables, why do you speak this way to people? Why aren't you just clear to them? He's trying to tell them, this is why. It doesn't work that way. You who have finally shed your skin, shed all this stuff and have gotten in close to the kingdom, now you can understand what these parables are all about. But until you have gone through that process, until you've gone through that journey, until you've learned to become friends with mystery, then this is what's needed to shake you out of that attitude, shake you out of that mindset. Jesus is absolutely certain about his Father's love. He calls it good news. He's absolutely certain that he is one with his Father. But is he certain about everything else? See, we see Jesus so much as God that we forget that he was completely human. I want to read to you just a little paragraph here from Brennan Manning's book and it's kind of striking the way he puts this. He first quotes Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer right before he was going to go to the cross. Abba, everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me. He's saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. But let it be as you, not I would have it. Jesus' death on Calvary is his greatest act of trust in his father. Jesus plunges into the darkness of death, not knowing what lies on the other side, confident only that somehow his Abba will vindicate him. Jesus' voluntary disengagement from life is his supreme expression of persevering trust, and it wins for him and every one of us fullness of life, and his blessed, obstinate, importunate trust ravishes the heart of his Abba. To be like Christ is to be Christian. Now, for most of us who are raised in the church, that's a jarring statement, isn't it? Jesus plunges into death not knowing what lies on the other side. Jesus allows all this to happen to him, just completely falling and trusting his father that somehow he's going to be carried through. And yet it really shouldn't surprise us. Over and over the scriptures tell us that Jesus was a man, fully human. Hebrews 2 tells us, He was made to be like all of his brothers, all of his sisters, everyone else. Otherwise, he couldn't be one of us. He couldn't do what he needed to do. Luke 2 tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature. And here, at Mark 13, Jesus is talking about the day of his return, talking about the last days as his followers are asking him, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? They want certainty, you know. They want to have something to hold on to. They want something with edges that they can see and grasp. And Jesus says, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, speaking of himself, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Jesus is free to admit that he doesn't know everything. Jesus is free to admit that for him everything is not certain except the one certainty that gives him trust in the Father that allows him to take all the other steps that he needs to take. In the same book, Ruthless Trust, Brendan Manning talks about a story about Mother Teresa that I've told in here before. Some of you know it, some of you don't. But it perfectly illustrates what we're talking about. There was a famous writer and ethicist, a Jesuit priest named John Kavanaugh, who had hit his own personal bottom, kind of hit his midlife crisis, if you will, even though he was older than what we normally think of as midlife. And his, his solution to this crisis that was giving him writer's block and disallowing him from being able to continue his duties at his school, at his college, was to take a leave of absence and go to Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa at the Houses of the Poor. And his first day there, he meets Mother Teresa, and she greets him. And she says, what can I do for you? He says, oh, please pray for me, Mother. She says, sure, of course. What shall I pray for? He says, pray that I might find clarity. And there it is, isn't it? He wants clarity. He wants the uncertain things to become certain. He wants to know. He wants to have edges that he can hold on to. And she just abruptly says, no, I'm not going to do that. So much like Jesus there. Here he is coming and asking a question. No, I'm not going to do that. And he's shocked. Well, why not? Because clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and need to let go of. And he says, but mother, you have such clarity. I see you working and see the choices you make. She laughs and says, I don't have clarity. I have trust. I will pray that you find trust. See, From his point of view, swimming in the sea of uncertainty, he looks at this little four-foot-nothing woman who kind of turned India upside down. And every step seemed as sure-footed as one of those goats who walks along the mountain, you know. And so he goes to her looking for clarity. She has something that he wants and he needs. And maybe he can somehow extract it from her or from her work. But standing inside that little four-foot-nothing body, she didn't have any more information than he did or any one of us. But because she trusted in the midst of the uncertainty, she could move forward. And from the outside in, that looks like sure-footedness. It looks like certainty. But from the inside out, it's just trust. This is Jesus. He has trust in his Father, in his Abba. He knows that somehow everything is going to be all right. He doesn't want to go through the pain like any, any one of us would the humiliation, the mockery, the death. He prays to see if it can be taken away, but when the night ends and he has sweat blood and just exhausted himself in prayer, his will becomes one with the Father again and they move out together. Still maybe not knowing everything, but just knowing that he can trust his Father. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. Not to make uncertain things certain, but to get down to the place of trust. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. Now we, on the other hand, we teach doctrine, theology, and scripture as if it's certain, as if it's settled science. We love to do this, don't we? Everybody, every Bible answer man has it all figured out. They're going to give you all the answers. They're going to tell you exactly what everything means. You know, and you better see it their way, by the way. <laughs> Otherwise it gets kind of ugly. Sometimes we call the Bible an owner's manual, as if you can just look up every problem that you have and apply it to what's going on, and you're going to get the correct answer. Somehow, if we could just interpret this thing right, then we can have this risk-free life that we're looking for. But we're posing questions and looking for answers from a text whose authors never intended such a thing to be asked of their writings. That's not what they were trying to do. Since the fourth century, with the beginnings of the church councils, We have more and more, the church has been settling these open mysteries of faith. All of these vast mysteries of God's nature, the dynamics of his relationship with us, were being settled in political decisions. And these church councils and these decisions more and more have caused division between people. Because of decisions of the church and the stance that the church has taken, the Orthodox Church, people have been executed, exiled, excommunicated, confiscated, war has been waged against them, they have been shamed, ostracized, and generally had their feelings hurt. By this church, who was so insecure, needed so much to make uncertain things certain that it couldn't tolerate any dissent among the people. And the most amazing, ironic thing is that these things that we're fighting over, killing people over, excommunicating them for, are things that we cannot know. They're mysteries. We're never going to know them. And in the name of trying to settle those mysteries, we trample all over the things that we can know, which is simply how to treat each other. We know that. We know how to do that. But we don't do that in favor of trying to settle things that can't be settled. The ancient Jews understood this at the beginning. They understood, and then they lost it. They knew what scripture really was, what the writings were, what the relationship with God looked like. And they expressed that in their sacred writings. But then the fear came in, and they lost it. And Jesus comes on the scene to try to reestablish it. That's what he's really doing. He said, I came to the Jews. He's trying to reestablish their direct connection with the mysteries of God's presence right here and right now. The Jews understood originally that law, the law of Moses, Torah, it doesn't even mean that. It means instruction or guidance. It's not an absolute instrument. The Jews taught that themselves. The law of Moses, the guidance of Moses, the instruction of Moses is not an absolute instrument. It needs man to interpret it. It's exactly what Jesus said when he was fighting the Pharisees and said, you know, the Sabbath was made for man. That rule was made to help people to be able to immerse into this mystery of life. They weren't made for the law. The law isn't just this absolute rule. But they turned it into that. And scripture was not written as scripture. Have you ever thought of that? When the original writers... 3,500, 4,000 years ago were writing these books. They weren't writing what they thought was scripture for someone three or 4,000 years later. They were writing poems. They were writing songs. They were writing historical chronicles about their people. They were writing wisdom literature that they hoped would help the person whose eyes they were looking into at that moment. They were writing for each other, for their own generation. But the really good books did so much to inspire people to evoke this presence to bring them into contact with something that was unseen that they were read over and over again and they were copied over and over again and they lived on from generation to generation just like songs that are passed around today or books that get bestseller status they move and they and they breathe and they grow among the people and this is what happened to these books that were written for the community. It wasn't until 1,500 to 2,000 years later that the Jews finally decided in a council after the temple had fallen, because after the temple fell they had to reinvent their religion anyway, which books were in and which books were out. And they closed their canon around the end of the first century. But that was millennia after these books had been written. And a similar thing takes place with the New Testament. The Jews started out understanding the mystery, understanding what this relationship with their God was. But they became fearful because they had received a promise that their nation was going to continue. Their nation was going to be fruitful. Their nation was going to be a light to the entire world and to all the Gentile nations around them. And starting in the 6th century BC, they were conquered and they experienced 400 plus years of constant occupation by a foreign power. How was their promise going to be fulfilled if they were always under the boot of first the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans? How was this going to take place? And the Greeks were the worst because the Greeks believed so supremely in their own culture that they didn't let their conquered people just be and practice their own culture and their own religion the way the other powers did. They took it upon themselves to try to, what we call, Hellenize them, to turn them into Greek culture. And then the fear set in, and a group called the Pharisees, for 300 years before Jesus, starting 300 years before Jesus, took it upon themselves to try to hold the line. They were the conservatives. They were the ones that were trying to hold on to the law, hold on to their culture, trying to push back the ocean with the broom of this Greek onslaught they're captors, their oppressors, their occupiers. And you could say this is a good thing. But in their attempt to make uncertain things certain so that they could say this is who we are, this is what's essential, this law, and then adding all the laws around it, they lost their way. They lost their trust that God's promise was going to be fulfilled no matter what. They lost the sense of the good news. When you think of the story of Abraham, it exactly mirrors what's happening with the nation of Israel. See, you're already there, aren't you? Abraham was given a promise early on in his life. I actually was 75 when, when he was given a promise by God that his descendants were going to be a great nation. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven and as the grains of sand on the beach. But he was looking around. He says, how is this going to happen? I'm 75 years old. My wife is just a little bit younger and we don't have any children. She's barren. She doesn't produce anything. And so he's been given this promise, but he doesn't know how it's going to happen. And after a few years of worrying about this and not seeing, he decides to take matters into his own hands with his wife's support. And he goes in and impregnates her slave, her, her uh, what would you call it? Maiden waiting? <laughs> Hagar, or Hagar if you're going to say it in, in uh, Hebrew. And has Ishmael. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't see how this promise is going to happen. So I better get a son so that we can start this thing going because I don't know if God's going to get this together. All right? Well, Ishmael turns out to be a real problem. He's going sideways. And then God comes back and says, You're going to have a child. Sarah's going to give a child. And they laugh because no way. You know, menstruation, menopause is so far in the rear view, we don't even remember what it's like anymore. So how is this going to happen? Well, it does, of course. The child of promise, the miracle child, Isaac, is born. And Yitzhak, Isaac, means laughter because they laughed. How is this going to happen? So now he understands something a little bit more, that there's suddenlies. Things can turn in ways that he didn't anticipate. And here is this child of promise. Here is the one that is going to fulfill what God had said. And then what does God do? I want you to take your son and sacrifice him. <laughs> can you imagine what was going through Abraham's mind? For Abraham, this child was the miracle. This child was the visible means by which an invisible promise was going to be fulfilled and he was asked to blot it out. You see, the significance of Isaac, the significance of this story is not whether God would allow child sacrifice or anything. No, it's about Abraham's willingness and ability to let go of the last thing that he was clinging to that was keeping him from pure trust in God's promises. And when he was willing to do that, then he became the father of our faith. And the father of the faith of the three great monotheistic religions on the face of this earth. He had to be willing to do that. But look at the shape of his journey. And now look at the shape of Israel's journey. They started out understanding this connection because it was received from their father Abraham. They knew the nature of this mysterious relationship with their God. But when the foreign occupiers set in and there was no way that they could see how this promise was going to be fulfilled, they took it into their own hands to try to codify the law, codify their scriptures, and create this certainty to win God's approval back because they weren't sure that they had it anymore so that they could then move into the promise that they were supposed to go into, get to the place that they were supposed to go. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, you know, you lost your trust, and because of that, now you've lost your soul. And because of that, you're in danger of losing everything else. Can we pull back? Can we come back to a place where these things start to make sense again? This is what Jesus is trying, to get them and us to do. It's the exact same thing. If you take a look at the shape of your life, does it mirror what's going on here? Was there a time when you trusted absolutely? Yeah, you might not remember it because your childhood might have been short and cut short, but there was a time when you trusted absolutely. And when the fear set in, then you put in the programs for happiness that you needed. That's your Hagar. That's your Ishmael that you're going for. And now Jesus is calling us to say, can you let go of that thing that you're clinging to? Can you stop trying to make uncertain things certain? Can you stop excluding the people that disagree with you, that chip away at the walls of your foundation in such a way that it makes you more fearful? Because that is the only way that you're going to relearn the trust that is necessary to be able to not only accept mystery, but to relish it, to move into it. You know? Can we find a way to no longer see life and the world as this unsafe, scary place, but as a place where we can experiment, where we can make mistakes, knowing that we're loved through it all? How many times did Jesus say to forgive someone who had made a mistake against you? Seventy-seven times seven, right? That's that's basically, if you look at the numbers and what numbers mean in Hebrew, that's like saying forever in a day. You're never going to stop. There's never going to be a time when you don't have another chance, where you can't experiment again, where you can't make another choice. This is what Jesus is telling us. He's trying to get us to come back. And he's giving us three steps, basically, to do it. How do we come back? How do we make this work? The first thing is you've got to embrace the good news. That is the prerequisite to all of this. If we don't understand, if for a second we think that we have to do something in order to gain God's love, gain God's approval, his acceptance, then life is going to be too scary to simply move into uncertain places. We have to get a glimpse that the good news is true, that it's possible. And then what do we need to do? Become willing to be disturbed. Become willing to be disoriented. Become willing to be uncertain. Even move into doubt. Because if we don't move in that area, there's no growth that's possible. We have been taught that doubt is the opposite of faith, but it's not. That's only if we understand faith as intellectual agreement, as mere mental belief or assent. Faith is the ability to move in the presence of doubt. That's why faith is so important. Because when is there not going to be doubt? Only when we have retreated into our little fortress and made uncertain things certain and excluded everybody who disagrees with us. That's the only time that we feel that there is no doubt. But as soon as we move out in a healthy way, move out among the people in a stage four sense, then the doubt returns, the uncertainty returns, the disorientation returns, the ability to move through that and to grow to the next level and the next and the next and the next. It's an oscillation, you know? But what undergirds that all is the certainty that the good news is true. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do this process. Are you willing to move into uncertainty? Are you willing to push the envelope, to move beyond the pale of what you already know and understand? And then finally, third, Are you willing to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow mystery? Come follow this unseen relationship with Father to let go of the last thing that you're clinging to. Let go of your Ishmael, whatever it is that you've grabbed onto in your life, and simply move forward. I think Brendan Manning sums it up perfectly at the end of Ruthless Trust the last two paragraphs of the book. I'm sorry, I'm giving you the ending. Spoiler alert. He writes, Ruthless trust. And by ruthless trust, he means trust without self-pity. Trust that will not worry about this disorientation or all these things that you're going through and just continue to persevere in life. Ruthless trust is an unerring sense, way deep down, that beneath the surface agitation... Boredom and insecurity of life, it's going to be all right. Ill winds may blow, more character defects may surface, sickness may visit, and friends will surely die. But a stubborn, irrefutable certainty persists that God is with us and loves us in our struggle to be faithful. A non rational, absolutely true intuition perdures that there is something unfathomably big in the universe something that points to someone who is filled with peace and power, love and undreamed of creativity, someone who inevitably will reconcile all things in himself. The splendor of a human heart which trusts that it is loved gives God more pleasure and delight than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel and all other human glories combined. Why does our trust offer such immense pleasure to God? Because trust is the preeminent expression of love. Thus, it may mean more to Jesus when we say, I trust you, than when we say, I love you. That's huge. It means more to Jesus, to God, when we say, I trust you, than I love you, because it means that we have taken the journey. We have done all those steps that Jesus is talking about. You know, you've probably heard the expression, if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. Heard that one before? Well, if you're afraid, the whole world looks like law, looks like absolute certainty, because that's the only thing that you can see. That's the only thing that you can deal with when fear is the character expression of your life. But if you know you are loved... Then the whole world can look like a playground, an adventure, an amiable uncertainty. It means that you've made uncertainty and mystery your friend. You don't try to solve it. You don't try to resolve the paradox. You can just enter in. And you don't have to understand. You don't have to have it all figured out. You realize that this life and this journey and this relationship is just going to keep unfolding and revealing forever. And that's okay. Let's pray. Father, you are inexpressible. But we can experience you and we can know that we know who you are in our lives. What you mean to us. What we mean to you the nature of our relationship with you. Help us get past the fear that keeps us from being able to just enter into that. To experiment and make mistakes and go down dead alleys and dead ends and come back again. Help us not to be afraid. To be led into error. Because we can always come back. That you love us the way that you do. Help us to relish the uncertainty and the mystery that we don't have it all figured out that we can still be surprised and delighted in ways that we can't even imagine. Life without that ability would be so dead. Help us to see that and chase after everything that you are as you are and not as we would like to make it because we're afraid. Again, Father, all we can do is thank you for loving us this much, loving us as you do, to create us in this way, to put us here where we can learn the things we need to learn. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our lives. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. (sighs) Let's all stand.